Welcome to our show, Holding Ground. My name is Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Each week, I'm joined by another therapist from the Anchor Light team to tackle important topics in mental health and psychotherapy. Our goal is to promote well-being by normalizing mental health challenges. We are here holding ground for you every Monday morning at 9 a.m. on KKNW. Welcome to Holding Ground, the show that brings you a little bit of everything in the world of therapy and positive mental health. We are here live on 1150 AM talk radio every Monday morning at 9 AM, but you can stream this show anytime on your favorite podcast platform. My name is Laura Richer. I'm a psychotherapist and the founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective in Seattle, Washington. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to our guest, Leslie Todaro. Leslie is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the co-founder of the Hallowell Todaro ADHD Center in Seattle. She brings a strength-based approach to her work with clients, working with each client to help them understand and take advantage of the gifts that accompany their unique challenges. It was the experience of facing some of these unique challenges in her own family that prompted Leslie to complete intensive postgraduate training with Dr. Edward Hallowell. Dr. Hallowell is a national leader in the field of ADHD research and treatment. So Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, of course. So first of all, I would love it if you could just share with our listeners a little bit more about you and how you came to focus on this work specializing in the diagnosis of ADHD. Sure. I sort of fell into it. Um, I'm obviously a, a licensed marriage and family therapist, but one of my children and my husband were both diagnosed with pretty severe ADHD. And um, I decided that I wanted to develop an expertise and really understand them. I had really no intention of uh, teaming up with Dr. Hallowell and starting all of these centers. Um, but uh, people with ADHD are very persuasive and very charming. <laughs> After about two years, um, he convinced me uh, so we partnered and seven years later, here we are. Wow, that's fantastic. So I think this is such an important conversation to be having because ADHD is not an uncommon diagnosis, but I think there's also a lot of misconceptions and maybe a lack of understanding about how a person with ADHD might present. I think sometimes we all feel a little bit ADHD because our attention is being pulled in so many directions, or we might even think about the, you know, the eight-year-old boy who can't sit still in the classroom and think of that as what ADHD looks like. But I know that there's so many other presentations. So, I mean, just even getting to basics, what, what is an ADHD diagnosis? How do you make one or what is it? Just what, what it is ADHD. Let's start with what is ADHD? So ADHD is, is sort of two things. I mean, there's many things, but Dr. Hallowell would love me to, to give you his tagline, which is that uh, people with ADHD have Ferrari brains with bicycle brakes. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's his way of describing it. The other way is that people with ADHD produce less dopamine and norepinephrine, which are chemicals in the brain that are responsible for helping with executive function. And executive function are you know, uh, lives in the frontal lobe of the brain and includes things like concentration, time management, uh, emotional regulation. There are many things that, that are there. And so because people with ADHD have lower dopamine and norepinephrine, they're not operating at the same level as somebody who doesn't in terms of, of in lots of ways. So, um, that's actually why medication is used as counterintuitive as it is. It stimulates the production of those two chemicals to bring someone up to baseline. Um, so ADHD really isn't as it sounds. It's not an attention deficit. It's actually just an attention. It's a dysregulation of attention. Sometimes you have a ton of attention when you love something and the dopamine is surging. And sometimes you have no attention. Uh, when something is boring or not interesting to you. So why is it important for somebody to get a diagnosis? How does that support them in, in maybe learning more about this, this diagnosis or, or improving their symptoms? 
Oh, it's so important. Um, you know, although we'll probably get to that um, underneath the challenges of ADHD lie enormous gifts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, ADHD can ruin somebody's life. Um, you know, if they can't organize their life, they can't keep a job, they can't keep a relationship um, because they forget to do lots of different things that are required to maintain just life as it is. Um, it can be incredibly difficult. Um, a child with ADHD um, who usually is um, quite a bit smarter than um, kids without ADHD um, usually uh, has a really hard time understanding why they've been either told they're so smart or they feel that they're smart and everything is really hard for them in school um, or at home there. You know, if you were to count how many times you said the name of a child with ADHD in your home, asking them to do something, change something, pick something up, come to dinner, it would probably be in the hundreds. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always something good to recognize um, because believe the child notices how many times their name is being said versus someone else's. So um, what happens is, um, it, and it happens at different ages, um, children or adolescents start to develop, to, to lose self-esteem, lack of confidence. They start to feel stupid. They don't understand why they once were so successful and things were so easy. And now they're just so hard. Um, and so it's really important in terms of um, the child being successful as they go through life. And it's important for the family and parents to understand um, what's going on with an ADHD child because um, many times their behavior is deemed defiant or uh, done on purpose, or there are lots of negative attributes associated with it. Um, and the truth is it's none of the above. Um, underneath that behavior is a fear of failure and not being able to perform the way they have either in the past or are expected to. And it leads to can lead to major disruption in people's homes. So that's a question that I had for you today is, are there some things maybe the education system does or even parents unintentionally, they're, they're trying to parent their child with ADHD, but they're, they're doing things that maybe are, like you said, saying their names so many times or correcting them so many times that actually in the long run are pretty harmful? Yeah, unfortunately, there are quite a few and there are, and they're not done on purpose. Um, you know, the work harder, try harder, you're lazy. Um, you know, there's a book called, I, I think it's called, I'm not lazy, dumb or stupid, I just have ADHD. Mm. Um, and so there is sort of this antiquated view that if you push through it, um, you can do anything. And yes, um, some of these kids push through um, something that may take a non-ADHD kid an hour, it may take them four and they'll succeed, but there's a price to pay for that. So the attitude um, and stigma attached to having ADHD, and sometimes, you know, people don't believe in ADHD. It, it's not a religion. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something you believe in. It's just, it's just the chemical makeup of the brain. So there are a lot of, you know, detrimental things that can happen at home um, unintentionally, and sometimes because the belief system of the family um, is that hard work is where it's at. And then in the school system, um, particularly public schools, but private schools as well, teachers are not educated unless they've taken, you know, uh, professional development outside classes on how to teach a child that not only has ADHD, but that learns differently. And when you have a class of 30 kids, it's, it's really hard to control the 10% of kids or more that um, learn differently and are either disruptive or wiggly or aren't paying attention or whatever one may say. So there can be a lot of damage done by teachers who don't quite understand what they're looking at. And that being said, there are some incredible teachers who see it right away, speak to the parents about it, um, and make all kinds of accommodations to help the child be successful, but you have both.
So what are some things parents and teachers can do to create an environment that's conducive to success for a child that has ADHD? So parents won't like to hear this, but what parents can do is expect nothing. Okay. They need to just <laughs> let go of their expectations, let go of the chores, let go of the lists, and let the child develop um, in an organic way. Mm. Uh, children with ADHD, the brain of a child with ADHD um, develops usually at a 30% slower pace in terms of the frontal lobe. It doesn't close as early as others. Nothing to do with how smart anybody is. It just has to do with development. So parents will always say to me, my, my kid seems so immature. They actually are. They're 30% less mature than one would expect. So the expectations that people have around, he should be doing this by now, you know, she should be able to do that by now. None of that should even be thought about. What should be thought about is sort of one at a time, what's the most important thing that needs to happen and how can you calmly make that happen for that child? Um, whether or not they empty the dishwasher um, is really not helping anybody because it causes a fight, it causes disruption in the household. Um, and it's, you know, the number one important thing in any relationship, but particularly ADHD relationships is connection. And the more connected you are to your loved one who has ADHD or your child, whoever it may be, um, the, the greater success you'll see. Okay. So it really sounds like choosing your battles. And I would imagine that might be reassuring to parents too, knowing that they, that they don't have to manage their child in the same way or that that they are developing it's just going to be at a different rate um sometimes it, it it you know it is soothing to understand it but it's very difficult for parents as you know to change their ways yeah um, they've been raised a certain way they they have their own belief system um and it's really really hard to let go of you know what your expectations are and just you know, allow your child to feel joy and be happy and develop and they will get there. Like parents are always worried that they'll never leave their house and they'll live in their basement. And yeah, some of the most successful people in the world have ADHD. Um, if you were to go online and, and see who talks about it, um, most of the entrepreneurs and startup guys uh, many athletes, many singers, many, I mean, many inventors, you know, because people with ADHD think so far out of the box that they're able to come up with ideas and make things happen that um, others may not think of. And so that's the gift that you're talking about is that there's also this great creativity associated with having ADHD. It's unbelievable. And, you know, I don't have an ADHD bone in my body. Mm -hmm. So I'm always in awe of um, what I see. People with ADHD have the most, the most curiosity I've ever seen. They can go online to look something up. And three hours later, they now understand the entire English monarchy. Yeah. Um, and that's really typical. And when yeah. I say that to people, they laugh just as you do, because that's what happens. They float away into something that interests them. And, you know, they land on who knows what. Um, and really great things can happen. Yeah. And just knowing that I imagine can help parents support their kids in, in harnessing that, that creativity and, and, you know, uplifting them and building their self-confidence. The best thing a parent can do is help a child find a passion. Um, or two or three, whatever that may be. Um, you know, frequently what you hear from parents is, you know, the, the amount of time they're particularly ADHD child, but not necessarily just an ADHD child, um, wants to be on the computer or playing video games or, you know, all of these things that drive parents crazy, mm -hmm. um, you know, and rightfully so. But if your child has other passions or can be steered in other directions, um, typically those video game attachments tend to lessen. Mm. Um, it doesn't happen as early as parents would like, but um, you know, 
passion for something else is the ticket. So are there some co-occurring disorders that occur frequently with ADHD? I know often ADHD is associated with learning disabilities. Is that is that accurate or is that just a misinterpretation of, of the child and how their symptoms are presenting? So a child with ADHD um, certainly doesn't always have a learning disability, you know, a quote learning disability. Mm -hmm. What typically you will see if someone does a, neuro, a full neuropsych evaluation, which, um, you know, explores many things about a child, you will find that a child has a much slower working memory, which is your ability to take in knowledge and use it at that moment. And they have typically slower processing speed than what their intellect shows. So you will see a child with verbal comprehension in the 98th percentile, and you could see that same child with a working memory in the two percentile, mm. two percentile. And so that makes it incredibly frustrating, obviously, because the child's intellect is way ahead of their ability, their ability to perform. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's difficult. It isn't unusual to see a child um, with ADHD who has something like dysgraphia, which is a, a writing difference or dyslexia, which which, you know, is a difference of sort of many things, but um, there can be co-occurring disorders in terms of learning, for sure. Um, ADHD rarely lives alone, but it, you really can see an extremely bright child who, um, you know, gets A's in school, doesn't show up in any way as lacking in school, um, sort of falls apart when they get home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there isn't really an indicator on paper that shows you that they have ADHD, um, which is why the true way to diagnose ADHD is spending, you know, an hour and a half or two hours with the child and or the family listening to the history of, I, I have people go back to the day the child was born um, and listen to you know, what their learning style was like, what their school experience was like, what their social life was like. Um, every aspect of their life is important and it will, it will pop out at you um, if it's there. And then of course you go through the DSM, which is uh, just sort of something that, uh, a book that many therapists use to look at criteria for different diagnoses. And so, yes, you go through the criteria um, to just sort of double check it. But, you know, all of those other things are, you know, tools. They're not necessarily um, completely diagnostic. Uh, I just want to add one more thing, just yeah. because um, ADHD frequently lives with um, anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to suss out whether that anxiety and depression is a result of the ADHD because who wouldn't be anxious and depressed when they can't get done what they're trying to get done? Um, and so you have to see if that's living on its own or when you treat the ADHD, that starts to go away, um, which is why you head toward the ADHD first. Uh, yeah. That's so interesting. I've had a handful of clients in my practice and I don't work with people who have an ADHD a diagnosis typically, I would refer them for an, an evaluation, but I have had some adult women that I've worked with over the years who come in presenting with anxiety. Maybe they've started having panic attacks or, um, and they're, and they are, are high functioning women. They have corporate jobs, they've completed college, but in adult life, it starts to kind of catch up with them. So when you see an adult that has not received a diagnosis and has not been treated, what do you notice that that maybe, why have they gone undiagnosed for such a long time? Um, because some people are incredibly high functioning and have learned to compensate for the difficulties they have. Um, and, you know, they'll come in as a very put together successful person, which they are. But when you dig deeper, you'll find, you know, a doctor who has, you know, notes that are due from months ago or uh, an executive who has piles and piles and piles of stuff on their desk and they're unable to tackle it. 
or they can't run their home in the way they would like to or keep their child's schedules intact uh, the way they would like to. So it, it, it shows up in many different ways. Um, and then when they receive the diagnosis, um, you know, there are different responses. You know, there's some mourning involved in, oh my God, I have worked this hard my whole life and I didn't have to. Um, and, you know, that can take some time to process. And then there's some joy in that there's an answer to why I just can't handle doing these things. Um, women are the least, the, the, the most underdiagnosed population that we have. And so do men and women present differently with their symptoms? Uh, usually. Um, so there are, there are three types of ADHD. Um, one is the inattentive type, which means that um, you have trouble focusing, you're very distracted, uh, you're fidgety, you're uh, trouble taking on things that you know are going to be really hard. Uh, people complain that you don't listen when they're talking to you. Um, There's sort of a, a group of nine criteria that sort of make up what's called the inattentive type. Um, and then there are nine other criteria, which are, you know, kids climbing all over things, um, interrupting, talk talkative, never waiting their turn, um, uh, can't stay seated, those kinds of things that people think of as the eight-year-old boy who can't stay seated. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have them together, which is called combined type, or you can have each of them alone. Um, I've only seen, I think, two people who only have hyperactive type. Um, so typically a boy, and this is really starting to decrease, um, a boy will have combined type because um, he's the wiggly one. Mm -hmm. um, and a girl will be diagnosed with inattentive type because she's dreamy and looking out the window and not really focusing and not really doing her work, but yet smart enough to turn in what she needs to turn in in class to not be noticed. Um, and so girls tend to really fall through the cracks unless they have combined type, which some girls do. Um, and then they're noticed the same way we typically think ADHD is noticed. So those girls who are just maybe dreamy looking out the window could be perceived as shy or, or, or something other than, than having ADHD. Or like the, like the women you just described, they can be perceived as anxious. Yes. Um, and, you know, that actually isn't their true diagnosis. That's, that's a subset of what's really going on with them that they don't understand. Right. Well, this is all such great information. I think we'll take a quick break now. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the effects of ADHD on romantic relationships, marriage, and other family dynamics. So stay tuned. You're listening to Holding Ground on KKNW. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. I'm Nathan Mum, and I'm the host of Tech Time Radio. Saturdays from 4 to 5 p.m., you can listen to our show live. The hosts cover top tech stories with a funny spin. That's good. So, what, like, Hooked on phonics worked for you, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Grab your weekly technology without having to geek out. Yeah, I can imagine. Only on Tech Time Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We talk technology for the everyday common person. Thanks for tuning in to our brand new show, Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, founder of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Our passion, our one big thing in life, above and beyond love, relationships, trauma, addiction, and healing, our specialty is helping others. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Assateague Island is known for its beaches, hiking, 
bird watching, and wild horses. The uninhabited island off of Maryland and Virginia's coast drew almost two and a half million visitors last year. But Assateague Island's sands are shifting underfoot. When a storm hits, strong winds and waves can carve inlets into the island and change the shape of beaches. And storm surges can wash sand from the Oceanside Beach farther inland. So over time, the island shifts. The northern portion of the island has moved about a half mile to the west in about the last 40 years. Hugh Hawthorne is superintendent of Assateague Island National Seashore. He says some movement is normal, but as seas rise and storms get more intense, the rate of change is speeding up. So the Park Service is working to adapt its facilities. It's now making restrooms and lifeguard towers portable so they can be moved to new locations as the island shifts. And Hawthorne says the Park Service plans to relocate its Oceanside campground farther west. The island may change, the way we manage it may change, but we expect Assateague Island National Seashore to be here for a long time. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Get inspired every hour right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Holding Ground. I'm your host, psychotherapist Laura Richer, and today I'm joined by licensed marriage and family therapist Leslie Todaro, who is the co-founder of the Hallowell Todaro ADHD Center in Seattle. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about anything and everything related to the diagnosis of ADHD. Leslie is an absolute expert when it comes to treating ADHD, and if you would like to learn more about her or other resources for treatment, you can find out more at hallowelltodaro.com. So, Leslie, I imagine that whenever a client receives any type of diagnosis, including ADHD, that it can really impact the entire family system. What are some of the effects that ADHD can have on a marriage if one or both of the partners has ADHD? So there are lots of effects. So uh, what happens is there's something sort of called the ADHD honeymoon, which uh, Melissa Orloff, who's a great resource for couples, um, who are struggling with ADHD in their marriage. Um, but there's sort of a honeymoon that, you know, you're attracted to one another. Uh, typically, at least from my own observation, ADHD finds anxiety. Mm-hmm. So the, the ADHD person loves the fact that the ang- person with anxiety tends to have things structured and controlled and dealing with whatever has to be dealt with in their life. And the person with ADHD is really fun and spontaneous and, you know, maybe takes more risks than someone with anxiety uh, would would do otherwise. And so it's incredibly appealing um, until either they have kids or life starts to hit them full force. And then unfortunately, they begin to dislike uh, those features that they once loved. Um, and so the way it shows up is the the partner without ADHD starts to treat the one that does have ADHD as a child. Um, and they'll frequently refer to them as another child. Um, and they will parent them, um, nag them, put them down, uh, not understand why uh, the person with ADHD just can't remember even with a calendar to do the things that they need to do. It's really, you know, uh, it's, it's super hard. And um, as you would imagine, can cause enormous problems. And so by the time they get to me, um, they're, they typically don't like each other very much. Um, they may love each other and want to stay together. But what happens is uh, people with ADHD can, can, at times not notice important social cues. Um, They don't notice when they have said something that may have hurt somebody um, or said something in a way that was uh, mistakenly taken as condescending or not kind. Um, And so one of the first things you really have to work on is the non-ADHD person uh, not taking things personally. Um, understanding that more communication has to happen. Um, Things like, did you mean to be condescending? What did you mean by that comment? 
um, as does the person with ADHD, because the person with ADHD has been raised since God knows what age, um, being criticized and told that everything they're doing is wrong. Um, so their criticism meter is always on high alert. And so many, many things feel like a criticism. So you have to establish a trust where uh, the non-ADHD person can, can say that it was no way a criticism, um, please believe me, or that was a criticism and let's talk about it and vice versa. So that at least you're on the same page and understanding what the other person um, is, it, where the other person is coming from. Um, it also shows up because there's uh, quite commonly a very uneven balance in um, who parents, who, who runs the house, uh, who takes care of meals, um, typical everyday stuff. Um, the person without ADHD will find themselves doing the vast majority of those things um, and becoming really, really resentful of the person who isn't. So when one is diagnosed with ADHD, it, you know, um, an excuse is not entered, but an explanation is entered into the relationship. And then you can work with treating the ADHD, which is vital. Um, if you don't treat the ADHD, you're not going to be able to move forward successfully in your marriage. And then, you know, going into counseling, understanding what it means to both of you. Um, you know, I always say to clients that my, my end result is that they actually can start to laugh at it. Um, you know, when my son leaves a trail of popcorn from the basement up to the top floor, um, <laughs> I can smile now instead of, you know, calling him down and making him pick up every piece of popcorn. Um, or when my husband is lost, regardless of what our, uh, you know, location device says, you know, and I can say, my God, I would hate to be you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he can laugh. And so that's, that's where you want to get, um, because that's going to help you live life very differently than a life of constant criticism. So just being able to laugh a little bit and not take everything personally, knowing that, that, that it's not personal. It, it, mostly it is not personal. Yeah. Um, it may become personal as the marriage degenerates mm. um, and they really don't like one another. Um, it can become personal, but um, underneath that is really, uh, please understand me, please be kind to me. Um, you know, that type of that type of thought is really is really what's under the nastiness. The same with kids when they when they defy you, they're really saying, "I'm afraid. I can't do this. Unless I'm good at it, I'm not going to do it in front of someone else." Um, and so there's always something underneath it, and that's what you have to get to. So what do you, have you had a couple come to your office who is, whose relationship is in a really tough spot and they were able to repair it? What kind of traits do you notice in the people that are able to do that work and make those repairs that maybe feel almost impossible when they first come in to see you? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I have, I have had many client couples who have come in who I can't believe are still married. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that what happens is they slowly start to understand where it started and where they came from um, and where it came from. There has to be an underlying, you know, real love and desire to stay married um, or, you know, obviously it's not going to work, mm -hmm. but um, people, the people that tend to open up and own their own stuff and start to understand the others um, are the people who really, really make headway. I mean, watching marriages change that I just can't even believe it's happening yeah. uh, is really what makes this kind of work really fulfilling and inspiring. And the truth is with adults um, and, and kids too, you sometimes um, when someone is, is interested in being medicated, 
you can see a change in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really like an, oh my God moment. Um, It's incredible. I've heard people describe that as that they've been trying to function without glasses on their whole lives. And then they put glasses on and they can actually see that medication can have that quick of an impact. Yes. And I use that analogy for people who um, are are very much against medication, which I completely understand. Um, There is so much uh, information out there that is so wrong um, and so misleading and scares people so much that the thought of medication, you know, they'd come in saying, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, You know, but the truth is I'll say to them, okay, take your glasses off and let's have the rest of the session without your glasses. Yeah. Um, And tell me how that feels. Um, And people can relate to that. So are there, are there different options with medication? I know some people sometimes feel adverse to like stimulant medications. They have some fear about negative side effects. Is there, are there different options for people who, who maybe don't want to take a stimulant? Um, yes, there are. Um, there are two options. Um, one is called um, in, Intunive or Guampacine, and another one is called Stratera. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people use Wellbutrin um, as sort of a second line ADHD treatment. Um, there, the jury's out as to whether or not it, it actually works for ADHD. Um, those are the three. I'm not a medication expert by any stretch, but I see it all the time, so I understand it. Um, but the truth is, there are so many stimulant medications out there now um, that you should be able to take medication and have no side effect other than potential loss of appetite. Um, and that's it. And you are yourself. You don't lose your sparkle. Um, you just go about life saying, huh, I got this done today. That was interesting. Um, and that's what the goal of medication is. So, you know, yes, people can write off stimulants and try those that aren't and at times find success, but not as often, not as often. Well, and I think that's so important too, to talk about that there are many different options. I think I've come across clients who are like, yeah, I tried Adderall and I didn't like it. So I'm not going to try medication ever again. And in fact, there's, it's a lot of options. Right. There are many, and there are many uh, combinations of options. Uh, And, you know, the, the truth is that's why you go to somebody who really understands ADHD medication um, because there are so many Um, that, you know, we want to get to the place where everybody's happy. Yeah. So I know at your center, what is so cool about your center is that you kind of are a one-stop shop, that you have medication management there as well as therapy. Why is it important for clients to to maybe consider using both of those as part of their treatment? Yeah, so we're a one-stop shop in in many ways. Uh, We do therapy, we do coaching, we do parent coaching, we do medication, we do family therapy. uh, We have all kinds of groups, um, parent groups, uh, DBT groups. um, You know, uh, now we're holding lots of groups for uh, to help parents with their kids with online school. Um, Now is just such an awful time. For yeah. a parent and especially a parent of a child with ADHD. Um, and it's it's hard for a child, I mean, with ADHD to stare at a screen and focus for seven hours a day. Um, that's really tough. So what do you recommend to those parents? It's so hard for parents right now because they have all this information about that not wanting your kids to have too much screen time, but now they're in school required to do screen time seven hours a day and you don't want them to play too many video games, but at the same time, they kind of have nothing else to do. What kind of, what kind of uh, tips are you giving parents to manage during this time? Um, you know, it depends what grade the child's in. Um, if they're a really young kid, Um, you know, I tell parents not to take school that seriously. Um, you know, teach the child what, you know, the core curriculum is, um, so they don't fall behind. And of course have them attend school, um, as much as they're willing or want to, so they can socialize somewhat. Um, but you know, I tend to tell them not to, 
parents not to really sweat it. Um, that, you know, they'll catch up. I assume school systems understand that kids are going to be at all different levels when they come back. This isn't going to be like, hi, how are you? Let's start school today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the post-traumatic stress that's going to happen um, with kids, parents, uh, uh, frontline workers, um, you name it. I, I don't even think we've begun to see the fallout of yeah. what's happening um, as we're living it. So, you know, I, I tell parents sort of the same thing I do generally is to step back um, and, you know, try to make it as easy and as pleasant as possible. Um, let your kid walk around, let them watch TV for a minute in between classes, let, you know, insist that they go outside if it's not raining in the sunlight, um, you know, have them get some exercise do other things that are equally as important. Um, and, you know, if, if you can let go again of uh, having your ADHD child sit in front of a screen all day and try to learn, um, it won't be as successful as if you let your child walk around the house with a computer, um, you know, just let them do and be in different places. I know people like to have a workstation and that works really well with kids who are organized and, you know, can plan their way through the day, but it doesn't really always work with kids who can't. So be flexible. Um, some parents that, that I work with hire tutors to make sure that the kid is, you know, where they, where they should be at grade level, um, just to make sure that they're not going to fall behind um, if they can afford it. Uh, you know, we have uh, homework groups, uh, different kinds of groups for kids to be able to organize their work and get it done. Um, so, you know, there are ways to try um, and help your child. I mean, I've heard statistics like a third of certain public high schools in the city, um, a third of the children are failing. Mm. Um, you know, that's so not okay in so many ways. Uh, and, you know, then uh, college entrance right now is, is so uncomfortable and bizarre. So you have it at every level. Kids are just going through so much right now. And I love what you're saying to parents. I think it helps everyone a little bit to say like, it doesn't have to be perfect right now that we're all doing the best that we can. And, and then that can be okay too. Yes, and I know parents are really concerned about future education, but you know, every college knows that there's a pandemic. Yeah. You know, this is not a secret. So um, it will be interesting to see how uh, grades and scores and things will be looked at in college as colleges decide who they're who they're gonna admit and who they're not. Yeah. So when I would imagine for parents, may, and maybe if neither of the parent has a, a diagnosis of ADHD and then they have a child with ADHD, that it, is it beneficial for them to do their own therapy or their, their own counseling? Because I, I would imagine there are going to be issues that, that come up for them as well in this process. Yes. Um, you know, if it's possible for them, um, and I realize that all of these things are, can be costly and really difficult to attain. Um, we do have a support group that's either free or I don't know, maybe $25. I don't know. It's, it's definitely affordable um, where you at least can talk to other parents, but parent coaching is, is a gift to the world. Mm -hmm. um, understanding your child, um, you know, really understanding your child and how uh, parenting them how to best parent them and how, how to have the best relationship you can um, is, is so important. And typically you will find that one of those parents does have ADHD or someone in their family does. It's the most heritable, uh, I don't like to call it a mental health trait because it, it really doesn't have to be, but it is the most heritable um, there is. So that's interesting. Do you treat kids who, through that process, the parent learns that they actually have ADHD as well? Yes. Okay. Very. 
very often. Very interesting. Well, I know you brought up cost, which, you know, that is a factor for people. Are there any, and and that support group, um, is that, can people find that at your website if they want more information about your support group? Yes, everything's on our website. Fantastic. Are there any other resources that you're aware of for people who don't have access to private uh, practice therapy? I mean, even if it's just like really great books that you would recommend. Yeah. So, I mean, of course I'm biased. I would, I would read uh, how Dr. Hallowell's first book, which is called Driven to Distraction. Um, it's very sort of front loaded and, you know, easy reading. And there are lots of aha moments. Um, he's written 20 other books in between, um, but he's recently come out with ADHD 2.0. Um, and it goes a lot more into sort of the neurology of, or the neuroscience of what's going on um, and explains ADHD in, in, I think, a much more sophisticated way. Um, and then there are many, many other resources. Attitude Magazine is terrific. Um, I, I know on our website also, we have many other resources for people to go to. Um, and then if you, you know, and I know that this is such a hard thing to say, um, but you know, if you really cannot afford it, um, learning how to manage the school district, um, would be the best money one could ever spend. Um, because it's, it's, it's such a, uh, an animal that people just don't understand unless they have to use it. And legally, the school system has to abide by whatever accommodations have been recommended or um, you know, whatever a child needs to sort of even the playing field. That being said, it can be really hard to get a school to, um, to adhere to these accommodations, but um, you know, this, the, the louder you are, the more response you get. Yeah. Um, and that would be a place where parents can take advantage of what the school resources are. Um, and there will be some, um, even the school guidance counselor. Um, I know, uh, one of our, uh, one of the therapists that actually was started the center with me, um, is a, is a guidance counselor at one of the high schools in Seattle. And, um, she sees many kids um, and is completely equipped to handle their ADHD. So, you know, there are, there are other means um, to be able. Um, and the, the, the one thing I wanted to say about the why I insisted we have a wraparound operation um, is not because I want everybody to come to us. Um, it's because the six-month waiting list when a parent is in crisis yeah. The one-year waiting list when your child needs a neuropsych. Um, you know, when people call, usually they're at wit's end. And having, you know, having to be told that they they have to wait um, is, is I, I just think, cruel. Um, and so- Yeah, that feels like absolute defeat in those moments. It's awful. And yeah. so, you know, being able to say, you know, yes, you can continue and get all the services you need in a timely fashion where we all talk to each other, no matter how many of us there are, um, we collaborate, um, seems to me to be a better choice. Um, but I never get in the way of an already um, established therapeutic relationship um, that's successful or anything else that's successful. We just are, we add on. But the one thing we don't do is send people out just with a prescription. Um, you, the, the more you pile on, uh, the more success you're gonna have. And being medicated makes it easier for you to be successful either with coaching or therapeutically or whatever you need. But sending a child out with just a prescription is you know, just a piece of the puzzle. Well, I would imagine there'd be a lot besides the medication being super helpful, though, that, that they could learn in terms of coping skills and and ways to better understand their diagnosis that you can't get just for medication. Yeah. So um, and there and again, there are many people who really do not want medication and, and that's totally fine. Um, there's there are coaching, there's psychoeducation, there there are, you know, all kinds of tools that they can learn. 
and try to, you know, learn the compensatory mechanisms they need to sort of bypass things that are harder for them than they should be. Is that effective for some people to just use therapy instead of medication? Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, not, I would say not the majority, but um, I think that it's absolutely possible. So I have, we are just about out of time, but I wanted to go back to one thing you said, because I think this is so important for parents who maybe don't have access to, like I said, private practice therapy, as you had mentioned going to the school system to getting help. What does that look like? Would you ask the school system to like do an IEP evaluation for your child or, or what would you recommend to a parent that wants to get started in accessing those resources? So I would recommend that the child be evaluated by the school system. Okay. Um, and then the school system, that evaluation will come with recommendations of accommodations or things to make learning easier for your child. And then follow up, um, follow up with each teacher that they're actually using the IEP or 504. Um, and for parents who don't understand what that is, they're just personal, they're, they're really just personalized learning plans for your child and they can be behavioral or they can be academic, but it really is touching base with every teacher, reminding them that your child has these accommodations, are they adhering to them? Um, and, and you know, uh, just bothering them, even though you feel like a bother, uh, you're just advocating for your child. Yeah. So that you can set them up for success so that they can thrive in an environment that's not really created for them necessarily. No, the environment is definitely not created for them. Yeah. Um, there <laughs> are a few places where the environment is created for them, yeah. um, as well as many other kids. I mean, you know, every child learns differently, um, but there are school systems that can bend and twist and wind and make that happen. And then there are others that just sort of push it to the side. And stay with that traditional, more rigid approach to academics, which is not going to work for everybody. No, it is, yeah. not. it is not. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Leslie. I am so excited to share this with our listeners. There's such fantastic information. And again, if you want to find out more about Leslie or other resources for anyone who has an ADHD diagnosis, you can go to hallowelltudero.com and get more information. So thank you for tuning in to Holding Ground. Have a great Monday. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks for tuning in to Holding Ground. You can find us here every Monday morning at 9 a.m. I'm Laura Richer, owner of Anchor Light Therapy Collective. Find us online at anchorlighttherapy.com. We'll see you next week.